Thanks for tuning into the Texas Family Law Podcast, where we provide you tips and insight to help you navigate divorce and child custody situations. This is Brian Walters. And I'm Jake Gilbreth. We are the managing partners at Walters Gilbreth PLLC with offices in Houston, Austin, and Dallas. And we're both board certified in family law by the Texas Board of Legal Specialization. Your hosts are broadcasting from the Lone Star State of Texas, where both have earned a reputation as fierce and effective advocates, both inside and outside the courtroom. Hello again, and Jake and I are going to talk today about what to do if you've been denied visitation. Jake, have you dealt with this issue before? Yes, and probably quite a bit more often now with uh, with COVID and everything. I think we may have talked a little bit before that's causing some more enforcement issues, and so we're still seeing that. And then it just naturally comes up even before COVID. I'm sure it will come up after where, frankly, just one parent just for whatever reason, just t- turn over the child, doesn't allow visitation for the other parent, and then we get the phone call. I think first sort of first things first, the reason why we get the phone call is a lot of times people will find, even when there's a court order in place, that contacting uh, the police is not always not always an option that, that works. First of all, if there's not an order, and we'll talk about that in a second, but if there's not an order, then there's certainly nothing the police can do. And then even if you have a court order, even if it has the magic language in there that they should all have that has a notice to peace officers that they can enforce the order. You find many times that a police officer will get called out when somebody's not allowing visitation. And the officer may talk to the parties, but won't take that next step to actually force force the parent to surrender the child, um, which is very frustrating. And then they'll say, you need to contact a lawyer. Um, And then we get the phone call. Um, And we should get the phone call regardless, even if you're able, even if the police are helpful, you should still follow up with the lawyer. But going back to it, first step, when we get that phone call, Brian and I were just talking about this, but the first step that you need to look into is whether or not there's actually a court order or not giving you possession. It's We get a lot of phone calls where somebody says, my ex or my soon-to-be ex is not letting me see my kid. And we go, okay, what, what's your court order say? And they go, I don't have a court order. I just want her to be forced, her or him to be forced to give me access to my child. And frankly, there's just not a way uh, to do that. That's not, you're not, if there's not a court order in place, there's no requirement that one parent allow the other parent visitation. It certainly may be the right thing to do, but there's nothing that actually requires a parent to give another parent access to a child unless there's actually a court order in place. So first thing we do is uh, try to determine, is there a court order in place? If there's not, then we talk about steps in getting a court order in place. And then you're looking at an original suit, child custody suit, or divorce, along with a divorce if the parties are married, to actually get a court order in place. But let's talk about when there are court orders in place. There's a court order that says when the child's supposed to be turned over, and then the child isn't. So what are, what are the options that you discuss with clients, Brian? Yeah, this is one of the thornier issues. So there's... It depends on the situation. First of all, you should never violate a court order, obviously. But there are extreme circumstances where it would be probably the only right thing to do. But those are really extreme. I got a call a day or two ago where the parent who the ex-husband had uh, been arrested for assaulting one of the children. And I think anybody would tell the mom, or if it's you know his weekend or not, I think you're justified 
nobody's really going to blame you for, uh, yeah, you can't have your weekend. You, you, the smartest thing to do would be to go get an emergency order to block that and make that kosher. But that's a real extreme circumstance. Very few people have it that clear. And, and yeah, if someone is denying you your visitation, then you have really three options. You could ignore it. hope they don't deny it anymore, which is probably unlikely. You could seek an enforcement, which is a punishment action. Or in some extreme circumstances, you can seek a writ of attachment where, or a habeas where the court will order either the child to be seized by law enforcement or order the other parent to immediately turn the child over, which we've all dealt with myself very recently, one of those. So each one is a little bit different. Each one has its own hurdles and strengths and weaknesses and pluses and minuses. Do you want to talk about one of those and then maybe I'll take the next one and we'll cover them all? Yeah. Yeah, and I guess let me let me do two of them because let's first talk about the do nothing. Is that's that rarely works. The do the do nothing. If a ex gets away one time with violating a court order and you don't do anything about it, you're just setting yourself up for that being the precedent. Even if after a couple of violations go by and then he or she starts following the order again, it's probably a good idea to still consult with a lawyer um, and do something about it, even if it's a minimal response to it. It's, you know, just letting them go is, is, is not a good idea because court orders are very serious. Judges will tell you all day long correctly that these are quarters of the court. They're meant to be followed. They're enforceable by contempt all the way up to jail time if you don't follow a court order. So just doing nothing is, it's rare that we, we talk about that as being one of the options. The other options is going to the other extreme. And then Brian, you can talk about just doing the enforcement. But the other extreme is what you were saying, and the writ of habeas corpus and the writ and the enforcement and sometimes you both those are all found in chapter 157 of the family code and what the writ essentially says if you are entitled to present possession of the child because i think what brian's going to tell us in a second is if you follow an enforcement you have to go get an order get them served get 10 days notice of a hearing and then you have a hearing two weeks later if you're lucky a writ's a more immediate deal it is a, the most extreme because it does get in law enforcement but if somebody just doesn't turn over the child, say for a summer possession, let's say a parent's summer possession is start to, supposed to start July 1st, and the parent just doesn't turn the child over, you have a right to go down and get a writ, which is essentially going down and get an emergency order. And you file the writ, and you have a certified copy of the divorce decree or the underlying court order, and say, here it is, I'm entitled to possession of this child. And then the judge has um, two options to either three. The judge can deny the writ, which they're really not supposed to do if you're entitled to possession of the child, or go have law enforcement bring the child then go pick up the child, bring the child over to the other parent. That's nobody's favorite option, and it's rare where that's the actual correct way of going about it. There are extreme circumstances where that's your only option. Or the other one is the writ of habeas where the judge tells the signs an order, tells the uh, parent withholding the child to bring the child to the courthouse. We'll give them a few days notice, bring the child to the courthouse, and then let's, we're going to effectuate the exchange. It's been really rare that I've ever done the, the writ of habeas where it's you have a constable go pick up the child. I think the closest, the, the way I typically do it, is I'll tell if we're in the situation where really a parent's not turning over the child or saying I can't make a child go, I'll say I can't make a 10 year old child go to, to the visitation with her dad or with his mom or something like that. It's just something that is that it wasn't an appropriate position to take. 
And we went down to the courthouse and essentially told the judge, we don't want the constable involved, of course. Mom's saying she's refusing to bring the child and she can't handle this sort of stuff. Judge, we want you to sign a writ, but give her one last chance to turn the child over. You know, tell her, if you don't turn the child over today at 6 o'clock, seriously, the constable is going to go out and pick up this kid. Please don't make us all do that. And then, lo and behold, once the judge signed the writ, then the child was turned over. And then we followed up with an enforcement action uh, because the dad had missed time and attorney's fees and all that stuff. So that's the most extreme remedy is the writ of habeas. It's something that we discussed in the consultation. And then, then the other one we're going to discuss is what Brian's about to talk about, which is just is filing an enforcement and seeking to enforce the court order. So why don't you talk about that procedure, Brian? And just to flesh out what you said, because I just went through exactly this last week. We don't have the option really these days, at least in most courts, to actually have the, everybody bring the child to the courthouse and have the judge see, it, see the exchange happen in, right in front of them. They're not, most courts, certainly one I was in, is just refusing to do that because of the, the COVID situations, you know, we had a hearing that was the gigs. Our position was real clear. Yep. It's supposed to be dad's time, but it's a 17 year old and they will not go. And the judge said, let's do the exchange. I offered my office or my lobby just because I you know, wanted to be cooperative and it was relatively easy to do. And the one parent, my client dropped the children off my lobby and dad came in and Sat there for two hours and the 17-year-old would not go with dad. And then 17-year-old left and drove away. And it was, and the judge was real clear. I'm not going to sign a writ. I'm not going to have the constable kick down a door for a 17-year-old. And there really wasn't resolution of that. I don't know where that's going to end up ultimately. So this is, I think maybe if everybody had been in the courtroom, it might've been a little bit different, but but maybe not. Um, It's a real... Interesting world we're in at the moment, which is not easy. The more common situation, and the reason the habeas is work right now is that a lot of the parents, the, the non-custodial parent typically has 30 days. And so if they don't get them on in July 1st, they've got enough time to file, get a hearing and go back. If you just have a weekend that you don't get your kid on a Friday afternoon, you're not going to be able to file something and get a hearing before Monday morning. So in those cases, which is much more common, then you file an enforcement, which is a punishment action. And there are which essentially says to the court, hey, I want the other parent didn't give me my child and I want you to punish them in some manner and also make up that lost time. Punishment can be a uh, fine, $500 per event. It's not a real great deterrent to somebody most of the time. It can be attorney fees. In fact, they're supposed to be paid if that's truly is an enforcement that's valid and which can be substantial. And then the most serious part of this can, is a potentially six months in jail, um, which is, it's really the most serious remedy there is. And now we can talk about the practicalities of that and how often that actually happens, but that's hanging out there as an option. So it sounds... Well, talk about a, so how does a suspended sentence work? Because that, that's something right. a lot of times we'll do rather than everybody pleads these things and the the kind of manual says you plead for six months in jail, which I usually take that out and and plead more for a suspended sentence. Cause I do think you look like, frankly speaking, no judges, well, I guess never say never, but it is extremely unlikely a judge is going to sentence somebody to actual jail time for, you know, first violation, but they may be convinced to do a suspended sentence. So what's that look like? Right. So that's been, been around a few of those. They actually sentence you to the jail, to jail, however long, 
six months or whatever, and then say they suspend it. So they say, I'm not going to march you off to jail right now, as long as you behave yourself going forward. And then whatever those conditions are, basically you don't do this again or for a certain period of time. And so you have that hanging over your head. And that's important because it's actually really difficult to get an enforcement properly filed, set, heard, and a ruling. Believe it or not, it sounds pretty simple. Hey, I'm supposed to have my kids on Friday and she didn't give them to me. It's shocking how few lawyers can put that together in a proper pleading and have a hearing to prove that. But if, so if you do get to that point, now to come back and get someone actually thrown in jail, all you have to do is show that, that they violated an order, which is a different procedure and different system than, than the original one. And, and plus it's su- supposed to be automatic and uh, they did violate it. And it's generally judges, I think, are a lot more, as you said, more likely to do this on the second violation than the first. Our system of a lot of things, including justice, is based on the idea that most people are going to obey the laws without having to be sent to jail. And so I think judges believe that most of the time, and I, and I think it's true, if someone is punished without sending them to jail, they're not going to do the same thing again a second time. Um, that's not always true, but uh, it seems to be true much more often than not. Has that been your observation experience too? Yeah, I think so. And I, defending these things, sometimes you see coming come in all guns blazing and ask for jail time and stuff like that on our first violation, which is probably the other extreme. You Don't do that. That's usually not a good strategy because it's not okay to violate a court order. It's also not okay to speed. It's not okay to possess a small gram of marijuana or whatever. Ounce shows how much I know. Ounce of marijuana. <laughs> but it's, things, it doesn't excuse it. And there should be a punishment for it most, in most situations. But you want to go in there, you're more likely to get a, a better result if you go in there asking for something realistic. If you go in there saying, judge, this person needs to go to jail for six months for you know one week in violation, that actually probably detracts from the likelihood that you're going to get all your attorney's fees or good makeup time and stuff like that. You need to go in, and the way we typically do enforcements is you go in and it needs to be tailored. If it's a first violation, then you're going in and saying, this is wrong, do a suspended sentence, do makeup time, and give me every single dime of my attorney's fees for having to do this. I think it's also important that to be communicating with the other side because the attorney's fees in Chapter 157 is a shall. I mean, the courts shall do reasonable attorney's fees on the enforcements that get granted unless they find that the individual doesn't have the ability to pay for it. And then they're going to have to actually state reasons for that. But it's a shall statute for attorney's fees. So you're more likely to get attorney's fees if you're coming in firm but reasonable and asking for reasonable remedies rather than coming in and overpleading it and racking up $50,000 on enforcement and asking for six months jail time for first violation. Now, having said that, if you're up there on your second, third, fourth time on enforcement, then that's when you really do start pushing. And if you've taken more reasonable positions in the past and bring it, building up that punishment, just like a judge would want to, you're more likely to get, to get those remedies. Yeah. I, because of that, I've been able to convince a lot of judges to do suspended sentences and get that finding of contempt. But going back on something you said, Brian, it, it really is, I don't know if fascinating is the right word or depressing, but it, I've seen, and I see more enforcements now during COVID, but just amazing to me how many lawyers, good lawyers, um, mess up enforcements rather than just pulling out the family code because you have to do it really specifically because we're talking about contempt and people's freedom and attorney's fees and everything. The statute's really clear on what you have to do. And 
the last two I've defended. So I just wasn't able to really prove their case. They got some remedies, but they were asking for contempt. Both times they weren't able to get contempt because they didn't plead it. One was a board-certified lawyer that forgot to put in the motion the actual part of the order that was violated and just sloppy on it. And it's just, it's really, really, I guess, disappointing to see that on both sides, that it shouldn't be as difficult as it is. But we see a lot of people kind of mess it up. And then I guess the other thing I'll say is people forget on attorney's fees, they remember that attorney's fees shall be ordered during enforcement action. What they forget to do is to draft those attorney's fees as child support. And the chapter 157 talks about if you're enforcing child support, then the attorney's fees ordered should be as child support. And then, and most people remember to do that. What they forget to do is if you're enforcing possession access, the family code says you get attorney's fees, but the only way you get attorney's fees as child support is if you actually make a showing that the enforcement was necessary to protect the safety and welfare, protect the safety and welfare of the child. If you forget to do that, I'm sorry, to ensure the child's physical or emotional health or welfare, so looking up exactly what the code says, you have to make that extra finding, that extra step when asking for attorney's fees and linking that up. Otherwise, the attorney's fees will just be a judgment rather than be as child support. And so many lawyers in enforcing possession access particularly forget to get the attorney's fees ordered as child support. Brian, why does that make a difference? If I get attorney's fees ordered against me as a judgment versus attorney's fees ordered against me as child support? Well, if you're Jeff Bezos, it probably doesn't matter. But for most people, child support is much more powerful. You can have it withheld from their paycheck. The IRS will intercept their tax refunds, et cetera. There's also more serious remedies for not paying those. And so versus a judgment, which is a piece of paper, and most people are judgment proof. Uh, You can't get their money under the Texas constitution. There are so many things are exempt that there's no way to get it. And so if you really want to make the person pay, you need to do it through child support. And I don't think that's a very hard burden to reach if you remember to plead it and remember to put on the evidence. I think it's almost pretty obvious if your child's supposed to be seeing both parents and one of them is denying that, I think that does harm the child. And so that should be a pretty straightforward finding. But I, I agree with you. They, they don't plead it or they don't put on the evidence. And, uh, and then you've got maybe you have a $5,000 judgment, but it's pretty worthless um, because you'll never see it. Where if you had a $5,000 fi- child support judgment, even if it's 200 bucks paycheck, you're still going to see it plus interest. So that's yeah. key. Yeah, I think so. So yeah, more stuff there than, than you think there would be. So it's important to handle it. They're not, they're not fun cases because somebody's not behaving appropriately, but it is good to get in there and make sure that we get the situation fixed and then vice versa if we're defending them. Getting people the help they need, either correcting the court order if they're violating the court order for, you know, quote unquote good reasons, we get in there and help them as far as actually cleaning up the court order and then dealing with the enforcement. So, a lot there, more and more common these days, but will always continue to be an issue in our practice. So, I think that pretty much wraps it up for this week. It does. Thank you very much. And um, I'm sure we'll talk again soon. All right. Take care. All right. Bye. Bye.